Morning, everyone. Please be seated. Once again, good morning and welcome to our Good Friday service uh, this year. It's great to be back in church after the COVID pandemic, after three years of severe disruptions, right, thanks to the pandemic. And I trust that you have experienced somehow a deeper measure and revelation of God's love so far in this service. I was really moved with the recollection of uh, the passion narrative. You know, what else can we say? What else do I need to say this morning? Indeed, there is no greater love than this, that a man would suffer and lay down his life for his friends, that our Father in heaven would send his precious Son to redeem sinners and rebels such as us. Yet we mustn't rush through this hour, for we must learn to enter a little bit more into the suffering of our Lord Jesus more deeply, even if it's just briefly. Let me just read one more passage from the Gospels, this time taken from Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see, Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Come, let us pray. Lord, as we sit in your presence, as we hear the same story retold over and over again, Lord, let it not pass us by. Bring us into a deeper revelation of all that you have done for us and who you are, Lord. And draw us closer at this hour of meditation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've uh, deliberately chosen three tongue-twisting words to guide our meditation this morning as a small expression of our inability to wrap our finite minds around this great mystery of God's love. And the three words are tall, thorn, torn. <laughs> tall, thorn, torn. Really tongue-twisters. First, tall. We know Jesus was flogged by the Romans, as we have also heard in the passage in John earlier, just before his crucifixion. So John's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, as well as Matthew's Gospel recorded this, that he was flogged. However, contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not actually give the specific number of lashes that Jesus received. Some people have suggested that Jesus was whipped 39 times. The widespread but tentative guess is based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. It states there that a person should not be whipped more than 40 times under Jewish laws. But Jesus was scourged and flogged by the Romans. They are not, he's not flogged by the Jews. And so the Roman soldiers are not obligated to abide by Jewish customs. And so in reality, no one really knows for certain how many times Jesus was flogged 
before he was crucified. But does it matter? It still does not diminish the fact that Jesus did experience flogging. Well, what was Jesus flogged with? Based on historical evidence, Jesus was most likely whipped by a scourging whip known as the flagrum or the flagellum, although this again, this assertion is not 100% conclusive. Now this sadistic tool, uh, next picture, most likely was made out of a short handle with bits of iron or bones attached to strips of leather. It is designed, hear this, is designed to maximize pain, ripping into the flesh to expose arteries, veins, and at times, organs. That's the intention, to expose all these things. Perhaps the greatest irony in this whole episode, this passion narrative, is how the Roman soldiers so easily tore Jesus' flesh, but not his clothes. We heard that passage earlier in John, but Mark 15, verse 24 also tells us the same thing, that they cast lots for his clothes. One of the things I always remind my children is this, and I say it in Mandarin to them, to help them improve their Mandarin a little bit, is this, I always tell them, people are a lot more precious than things. You know, children, they like to fight <laughs> over little things, right? And I tell them, no, look, it's always more important to value the human being over things. But yet the irony, the divine irony here, is that they so easily tore Jesus' flesh, but they refused to tear his clothes. If nothing else, this cruel act really shows us the horrible evils that humanity, and that's us, we are capable of. The song earlier, Were You There? We like to think that if we were there, we probably wouldn't have done it. Are you so sure? I'm not so sure myself. By the way, do you know that the casting of lots for Jesus' clothes was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, as with many others? Now, in case you don't know, for background, the Old Testament was written about 400, uh, 1, 000, oh, sorry, a few cent- across several centuries, from some 400 to 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. Yet, more than 300 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in that one historical period of 30 over years, in one person, Jesus Christ. The odds of that happening are practically impossible, unless, of course, God already had it all planned. That's the only way it was possible. Now, of course, some can try to argue that Jesus knows his scriptures very well, and so he would try to fulfill as many of these 300 prophecies as possible in his own effort. Maybe that's possible, but surely there are some prophecies which are impossible for Jesus to manufacture. Listen to Psalm 22, for example. At verse 16, Dogs surround me. This is a psalm by, by David. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And this is where the Old Testament prophecy is taken in the Gospels, right? Referred to by the Gospel writers. So how could Jesus possibly engineer a situation which guarantees that the Roman soldiers will cast lots for his garments. Maybe he tries to wear an expensive garment, one seamless piece, but even so, it's a situation completely out of his hand. How can Jesus 
guarantee that the soldiers will not be so greedy as to tear up the garment, but to cast lots for it. And so this is just one example of an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled to beyond Jesus' control. I'll share more Old Testament prophecies later on, as we've also heard in the passage earlier. So on the one hand, while I believe that Jesus could not have engineered certain situations to fulfill Old Testament prophecies, I believe Jesus knew very well that he was the fulfillment of all these 300 over Old Testament prophecies, especially Psalm 22. And that's why the scripture records for us, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen now to Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? You see the similarity? Psalm 22. But more than just quoting scripture as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, Jesus really meant every word when he cried it out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? For all his life from eternity and all 33 years of his earthly life, Jesus had an unbroken, intimate relationship and fellowship with God, his Father, unbroken. The source of all his life and love. For the very first time, in all eternity even, Jesus experienced abandonment from God his Father. Both in the Hebrew as well as in the Greek, the word used is forsaken, abandoned. It's not merely a separation. Parent and child can be separated due to war, maybe, natural disasters. Both sides are victims of a very cruel situation. But not here. God the Father is the active subject abandoning His Son. Why so serious, you might ask? Why so serious? What can be so serious for a father to abandon his son? I can't imagine why I would ever abandon my children to, to just leave them deliberately to their death. Why so serious, you ask? And the answer is because God is an absolutely holy God and sin is nothing less than a deadly, serious matter. A holy and righteous God must deal with sin seriously or else there is grave miscarriage of justice. And pardon all the puns, but I purposely use those words. Sin cannot and should not be trivialized. Sin cannot and should not be trivialized. The world trivializes sin. For example, the world says, Oh, we shouldn't eat such sinful chocolates. Statements like this give the false impression that sin is not really very serious. right? Sin maybe is a matter of opinion and choice. Sinful chocolates, you can choose not to eat it. But from the very beginning, God made it very clear that light and darkness cannot coexist. Light must be separated from darkness. Holiness and sin cannot be in the same place. And that's why when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of a holy God. The two cannot coexist. And so here Jesus is abandoned by God the Father because Jesus bore the sins of the world, bore our sins. How do we know this? Isaiah chapter 53 declares this, yet another Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah, and it is Christ the Anointed One. Verse 5, But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. In the Bible, sin is not just a wrong deed or even failure to do something good, even though these are also classified as sin. Sin really is a falling short of the mark, not being able to hit the target, an arrow that fails to hit the target. And that's why sin is not just about the wrong we have done. Sin is not only limited to big things like murder or adultery. Sin is failing to meet up to God's perfect standard of unconditional love, absolute humility, complete obedience. Let me say that again. Sin is failing to meet up to God's perfect standard of unconditional love. Who of us dare to say we love unconditionally without expecting return? Absolute humility. We don't think of ourselves. We think only of the interests of others. Complete obedience. So let's face it, we are all guilty of being selfish, self-centered, and rebellious. We are all guilty of these. And that's exactly how children behave as well, right? Psychologists tell us that, you know, they are just egocentric. Children are born being egocentric. Selfishness, self-centeredness, rebellious. And that's the world that we are born in. We ourselves find ourselves in. Moreover, we need to recognize that we who are born into sin, we are steeped in sin. We cannot save ourselves. It's like a Asking a person who is drowning to save someone else who is drowning. How is that possible? Both will just simply drown. Or how can the blind lead the blind when no one can see the way? We cannot save ourselves. We need that perfect saviour. One who is without sin. One who can walk on water. One who truly sees. He is the only one who is able to save. And his name is Jesus. In fact, Jesus' name means the God the Yahweh who saves. The book of, Old Testament book of Leviticus informs us that human beings cannot simply approach a holy God in whatever manner they preferred. No one can approach a holy God unless they follow the prescribed way that God has mandated. Now because of sin and the consequence of sin is death, God made it very clear blood had to be shed for the atonement, the ransom of life. In the Old Testament, as an interim solution, Animals had to die on our behalf to come into the presence of a holy God. Even when Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked, they realized they were naked. An animal had to be killed. God had to kill an animal to cover them. An animal always had to be sacrificed, even in the days of old, for us to come into the presence of a holy God. But that's only an interim solution. In addition, this animal that had to be sacrificed had to be perfect without any blemish. had to be perfect. And it had to be slaughtered in a certain way. Only one way. But animal sacrifices are only meant to be temporary. How can the blood of goats and you know, bulls, as the book of Hebrews says, pay the full penalty of our sin? Impossible, right? How can they substitute for us? And that's why God had to send His Son Jesus to become like one of us, incarnated as a human being like us, 100% human, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away our sins and the sins of the whole world. 
But because Jesus is also 100% God, He's sinless. He lived a perfect life. Only He can be our perfect replacement because He is the ultimate perfect sacrifice without blemish. And that's why there is no other name in and under heavens by which anyone can be saved except through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's tall. Second, thorn. This picture of a sacrificial lamb was foreshadowed or prophesied very early on in the Old Testament, even before the book of Leviticus. When Abraham was instructed by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, at just the very last minute, God stopped him and pointed out a sacrificial animal. Look at Genesis 22, verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in the ticket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham caught that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I found on the internet a wonderful picture. I think that describes perhaps what it might look like for Abraham to find this ram caught by its horns in the thorns. Doesn't this uh, ram, look at, let's look at the picture, look like it's wearing a crown of thorns. To be caught by a ticket, it cannot be a normal bush. <laughs> and in that desert area, most likely it's something like that. Unknown to the Roman soldiers, when they made Jesus wear this painful crown of thorns, from their point of view, they were mocking his kingly authority, right? Because the Jewish leaders said that he was claiming to be a king. They didn't really believe he was a king. They were mocking him. But when they made him wear this painful crown of thorns, they were again unwittingly fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Now, if you think about it, to mock Jesus, the soldiers could weave together a crown made of any material, right? They didn't have to use a thorny plant. And so there is another important reason why Jesus had to wear the crown of thorns. From a human point of view, from the Roman soldier's point of view, it's just a mockery of his supposed kingship. But from God's point of view, it really is meant as a symbol of the reversal of Old Testament punishment, the Old Testament curse. Specifically, the curse in Genesis 3, when the very first human sinned. And this is in Genesis chapter 3, when God said to Adam, verse 17, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So according to Genesis 3, the curse of sin is not just death, but pain, that thorn is a symbol of pain. So for Jesus to represent us, he had to undergo both pain and death, which he did. In addition, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3 informs us that everyone who is hung from a tree or from a pole is cursed. Is cursed. And the Apostle Paul confirms that Jesus bore our curse and punishment when he wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone who is hung on a pole is cursed. Cursed is the one, everyone who is hung on a pole. So the wearing of thorns, therefore, is God's signal to us that Jesus has taken humanity's curse upon himself. Not only has he borne our pain and our death, 
has also borne our curse. The result of Jesus dying on the cross then is recorded in verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that brings me to the third word, torn. What's the significance of this torn temple curtain? To understand this, again, you need to know in the Old Testament, the temple curtain was used to separate the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwells, from the rest of the holy place. God was so holy that in this Holy of Holies, only the high priest, one person, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. It's such a holy place that only one person can enter and it's only once a year and always with the proper animal sacrifices. Without going through the proper way, if the high priest tries to do it, the high priest might be struck dead. So God's presence in the Old Testament was not a place that you can simply walk into, just walk in anyhow whenever you wanted. No, in the Old Testament, it was a real dangerous thing to do if you did not approach God in the right way. The Old Testament laws were actually very clear, very consistent, and very certain in their message. You cannot approach a holy God in any way you wanted. God is absolutely holy. We are sinful. If you want to come into God's holy presence presumptuously or foolishly, you will certainly die. There's only one prescribed way you can come to God. Now notice that the curtain is torn from top to bottom, and not from bottom to top. If it was from the bottom to top, of course you can argue, right? Some human beings went there to tear it from the bottom, and then so it's torn from bottom to the top. But because it's torn from the top to the bottom, it surely must be an act of God. The tearing of the temple curtain therefore signified the greatest consequence of Jesus' death, and that is the end of the Old Testament era the end of the Old Testament era. No longer do we need to sacrifice innocent animals for us to approach God. For 2,000 years since their very first Good Friday, through faith in Jesus, simply through faith in Jesus, by believing that He died for our sins, that Jesus bore our curse, our pain, our death, simply through faith in Christ Jesus, we can now approach a holy God. What a complete reversal. Previously, you had to do so many things and you can't even approach God freely. But here now, in the New Testament era, because of what Jesus has done, what was previously impossible is now possible. We can even draw boldly, coming boldly into the presence of God. So let me just summarize our reflection this morning. First word, tore. The soldiers, they tore Jesus' flesh with the flogging, yet they tore not his clothes. Sin tore the father's presence from his beloved son, or rather, his son from his beloved father's presence. Recall Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just symbolic. Jesus experienced abandonment. But these are just two instances of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That, that God's wonderful plan of salvation for centuries, it was planned and finally brought to fruition. Thorn. For the soldiers, the crown of thorns was to inflict pain, to mock his kingship. But from God's point of view, really it's the reversal of the Old Testament curse. The Old Testament curse introduced by Adam, the first Adam, now the second Adam, the perfect Adam, reverses. 
And finally, the torn curtain temple, torn from top to bottom to signify the end of an Old Testament era. But note, in all these, God has never changed or lowered His standard. He has never changed or lowered His standard of perfect love, holiness and righteousness. Whether you're living 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago or now, God has never changed who He is because He cannot change. God is still holy. We are still sinners, incapable of saving ourselves. That has never changed. And we still cannot approach God any way we wanted. In the Old Testament, there is one way you had to go through animal sacrifice. In the New Testament, there is only still one way, the sacrifice of Jesus. While we no longer need animal sacrifices, do not be mistaken, there is still only one prescribed way all of us can come near God. And that is through faith in the death of Jesus Christ, that He alone bore our sin, our pain, our punishment, our curse, our death on the cross. It's we who should die, but He died on our behalf instead. And so as we close, let me say that it's not, you know, that you know, sometimes we hear this message uh, or accusation that Christians are very exclusive. <laughs> Why you only preach one way? Well, actually, if you understand what I've taught, uh, the, taught us this morning, we really don't have a choice. <laughs> we really don't have a choice. God hasn't really given us a choice. The principle or the truth we must understand and grasp is this. Sin is so severe there can only be one solution. And that's what people fail to understand. Sin is so severe, there cannot be any other solution except the perfect Son of God dying for us. We know that this message of Christianity is offensive to some. It will always be a stumbling block to others because it basically nullifies any human effort to try to reach God. Anything that they have tried to do, any good work that they have tried to do, it nullifies everything and says it's not possible. It's offensive to the human flesh. But that is the truth that God has given to us and we really don't have a choice. But I hope all of us can also see it from another angle, an angle that is liberating and very loving, that God loves us so much that He did everything, including sacrificing His beloved Son. God is so good, He took all the requirements upon Himself and is liberating and freeing because we don't have to do anything. He took the heavy burden of salvation upon Himself. And that is why Good Friday is good, even though Jesus, the Son of God, died. Good Friday tells the amazing good news of a good God whose plan of salvation for centuries in the making was finally established and fulfilled. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Come, let us pray. Invite the music team to bring us through a song of response, how deep the Father's love for us. But let us pray first. Lord, as we come, as we come this morning, to remember once again all that you have done for us, we are so thankful. Bring us deeper once again into the revelation of who you are and all that you have done for us. Let your love really saturate this place as your people worship you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.